All right. So we're starting a new series uh, today, which I'm very excited about. I'm glad that we're going to be starting this new series. Before I do, though, I wanted to just say a couple of things about what we've been doing over the last while. Um, Sometimes when we do sermon series, they're to help us function well as a community together. And over the last little while, we've had a couple that have been like that. And and I was so pleased this morning um, just singing and, and hearing the volume of singing in this room. Uh, and, and the enthusiasm with which people are worshiping, uh, what a blessing that is. And if you weren't here during the series that we did on worship and corporate worship and what it means to worship, that's online, and I would encourage you to take a listen to that because it affects how we function together as a community and really inc- increases our ability to be the church together. And so I want to encourage you to do that. And then secondly, we had uh, two weeks ago uh, a sermon on giving, and uh, it was by popular demand because I hadn't done one since 2009. I didn't even realize. Uh, but uh, people kept asking me, when are you going to teach on, on giving? So we did uh, two weeks ago. And if you were gone for that one, I encourage you to go online and listen to that. Again, um, not because it's great or anything like that, but because this is part of what it means to, to build our communities, to kind of get on board and link arms together and, and, and understand how we're functioning together and make things go well. So uh, I encourage you to do that. But this week, we start a new series for the summer. It's a series in the Psalms, and a couple of quotes I came across in my studies this week. This is from uh, C. Hassel Bullock, who's a commentator on the book of Psalms, and he says, Seldom has a people opened their souls so freely to all mankind as has Israel in the Psalms. And that's where we're getting the title for this series. It's called The Open Soul. Uh, a summer in the Psalms. And then Martin Luther said this about the Psalms. In the Psalms, one looks into the hearts of all the saints. We have this precious opportunity to look into the heart and the soul of the followers of God uh, through history in the Psalms. And it's a beautiful thing. So uh, we're going to be looking at the Psalms. A few preliminary things. If you, if you don't have a Bible this morning, I encourage you to uh, raise your hand and we'll pass one to you. We've got a number that we can give to you. We want you to have a Bible. If you don't have one at home, be just take this Bible uh, with you. We'd love for you to have one. But uh, I'll tell you in a minute where we're going to open up. Um, but before I do that, I want to say a couple things about the Psalms more generally as kind of by way of introduction um, to this series that we're going to be uh, doing through the rest of the summer. Now, uh, this transparency, the, the open soul that we get a glimpse of in the book of Psalms, this is really a gift for us. And I want to understand what a precious gift it is that the people... The nation of Israel has given us sort of an open glimpse into the soul, individually and corporately, of the people. That's a precious gift that's given to us. We know that the transparency like that is really a gift. Um, You've been sitting maybe in a Bible study or a home group before, and the discussion's going, and it's kind of good, but it's a little bit superficial. And then somebody says, you know what, everybody? Here's what I'm really struggling with. And they just sort of lay out there in an authentic, honest, transparent way what's really going on in their lives. And all of a sudden, the, the whole conversation has changed, right? Everybody starts to share, okay, you know what? I'm actually really struggling with this. And, and maybe there's a time of prayer and people are able to really get into each other's lives. Something happens when we're transparent with one another that's powerful and very important for the process of growing in Christ-likeness. We need this sort of openness and transparency. Of course, uh, the whole concept of counseling is based on this, right? You, you go to a counselor... Uh, and, and you need to share what's actually going on in your life. And it's a place oftentimes where you can share what's really going on uh, because it's safety and you can trust this person and you can share on a deep 
and profound level what you're really wrestling with. And that has to happen in order for you to grow and to be changed. There has to be that moment of, transforma- of transparency that will lead to transformation. Um, you know, many people uh, who are in recovery from addiction to various kinds of things have found uh, 12-step programs to be helpful. And one of the things that has to happen in a 12-step program in order for it to be effective is that people are authentic. They share where they're really at, what's really going on in their lives. They're transparent in that way. Without that, it just doesn't work. Uh, So I'm just piling up examples of the importance of transparency. Personally, uh, for me, I've got a number of relationships where I have that freedom and that trust. Um, I have one friend I've been talking with every Monday morning at 7.30, for uh, 12 years, I think it is, something like this. And so we just have this relationship that's grown over time, and there's a level of, tr- of trust there where we can be incredibly transparent with one another. And then, of course, uh, with my wife, um, we have 18 years of, of working on this together. Uh, and so these are important things. But then also, I find that in my own prayer time, and I have to journal out my prayers because um, I'll fall asleep or something if I just try to pray in my head. So I write out my prayers, and one of the most important things is for me to be transparent with God. And I actually talk to God in my prayers. I don't say, uh, talk about God in the third person. I'm praying to God and speaking directly. I use the word you when I'm writing in my journal and being honest with the Lord. And, and I find that the times when my walk with God is weakest is when there's the lowest level of transparency about what's really going on in my life. I find that when my walk with God is richest and, and, and where I'm, I'm, I'm maybe being most effective in ministry and, and, and there's a vibrancy to it is when I'm being transparent with God and, and saying, this is what's really going on in my life. Can you help me? Uh, I need to pray about this, this fear that I have. Maybe I don't want to admit that I have that, but if I get transparent and open with God, then I'll be able to admit that and uh, pray, pray that prayer. So this is really a, a tremendous gift that we have that the people of Israel have given to us in being so open about what's going on with them in their lives, individually and collectively. It's a wonderful gift. It does several things. It gives us permission to be open and honest and transparent with one another and with God. It gives us permission. Oh, look, the people of God have acted this way in the past. They didn't try to hide all that was going on in their lives, they were open about it, so I can be as well. It gives us permission to do that. Um, We have fellowship through the Psalms with the saints of the past, those who've been followers of God, that's what the the saints are of the past. Um, We have fellowship with them in our suffering. So you read a Psalm, maybe you've experienced betrayal in your life, and you open up to Psalm 55, and there's David pouring out his guts about somebody who's betrayed him, and all of a sudden you go, oh my goodness, I am not alone in this. I am not the first person to have experienced betrayal in my life. Other people have gone before me. And then you start reading it, and you go, how did he know, right? How did he know that's what I feel in the midst of this betrayal? So it gives us permission, but also the Psalms give us fellowship in our struggles and uh, what might be going on deep inside of us. And then they also demonstrate for us how to process through these things. So let's just say betrayal is the issue that you're working on, and you go to Psalm 55 and you start to read it, and and, and as you're reading it, you say, oh, wow, I'm so thankful that David felt this way too, and I can be honest about how frustrated and angry I am, Um, and, and it's so great to know that somebody else was in the midst of this 
uh, and, and I'm not alone in this, but then you, you're watching David process through, and all of a sudden, he starts to bring God into the mix, and he starts to process his betrayal uh, under the, the watchful care of the Lord, and, and you all of a sudden have a lesson in how to work through your betrayal as you watch David work through it. So this is powerful stuff. Not only does he give permission and fellowship, but in the Psalms, the psalmist demonstrate for us how to work through these things in our lives to bring them to God and to experience healing and growth and transformation. And that's what I'm praying and hoping that we connect with in this study in the book of Psalms. Now, there are a lot of other things that happen in the Psalms. There's a lot of wonderful, rich theology that's given to us in the book of Psalms. Um, there's prophecy about what's going to happen in the future. Um, there's, there's liturgy, in other words, uh, understanding how it is that we gather together corporately or worship individually. There's, there's helps about all of that. But um, what we're going to be focusing on uh, in much of our study is just the openness of the soul and how important that is. Now, a couple of things about the, the Psalms themselves, just sort of introductory things about the Psalms. There are 150 Psalms. Many of them are anonymous. The largest uh, share of them have been written by David, King David, who was sort of the pinnacle uh, leader during the pinnacle time of Israel. And so, um, do we have the slides for this? They're coming. Okay. Uh, So King David wrote 73 psalms. And um, I'll just tell you, you just have to memorize this in your head, okay? Uh, King David wrote 73 psalms. So he was sort of like... um, he was sort of like the Beatles of the book of Psalms or the Elvis Presley of the book of Psalms because um, he wrote uh, just a, a large portion of the. After David, we have Asaph. Now, uh, Asaph was the chief musician, and he wrote 12 of the Psalms. And I apologize, it's not as bright as it could be. Just squint a little and it should help. Um, uh, he's, Asaph was a chief musician, and he wrote 12 of the Psalms. So he would be like the Michael Jackson or something of the of the Psalms, um, uh, and then we had, uh, after uh, Asaph, uh, sons of Korah, the sons of Korah uh, are a priestly family, and these, we don't know anything really about them except that this particular group of them, these sons, wrote 11 of the Psalms that we have, so maybe uh, in terms of uh, popularity, Led Zeppelin or something like this. Um, and then we have Solomon, who wrote just two of the Psalms. So um, I used to listen to ska music a lot, and that's about how much people like ska music. Um, yes, <laughs> there's two of us. Awesome. And then you've got Moses, and Moses was, wrote one. And I think it, oh, Moses just came a little, he's like Little Richard or something. He just came early on the scene, and people did, he was ahead of his time. People didn't really understand him, but he influenced a lot of the others uh, who wrote the Psalms. And then you've got the one-hit wonders with Haman, we know nothing about him. And then Ethan, uh, we don't know anything about that. And then the rest of the Psalms are anonymous. So uh, those are the authors of the Psalms. And, and they reach down deep into their life experience and bring it forth and then connect it to God. And it's a beautiful thing. Now, the structure of the Psalms, a little bit hard to get our minds around. There are five books to the Psalms. But if you try to take them and say, well, this particular book is mainly about this and this one's mainly about this, you're going to have a hard time. They don't divide so nicely. In fact, they were books that were probably um, uh, developed at different times and used concurrently, and sometimes you'll see the same psalm. There's a couple of repeat psalms throughout, uh, so you'll notice that as you're reading through them. But you can divide them up a little bit according to content. What, 
is in the particular psalms. And we find as we look through uh, these basic categories for the psalms, there are psalms of praise. That's the first category where we're just declaring how wonderful God is. There are psalms of thanksgiving. And those psalms have to do with how God has perhaps brought a people through a difficult time. And as a result, we offer praise and, and thanksgiving to God. There are psalms of uh, royal psalms, excuse me, psalms of lament. And in those you'll see different, both kinds of, you'll see individual lament where somebody's suffering some particular circumstance or corporate laments where somebody is lamenting the situation of the entire nation and pouring out to God uh, uh, prayers and, and, and desire for help and assistance. There are royal psalms, psalms that have to do, they're connected to the king in Israel, and they talk about this leader, they talk about um, uh, how, how, how he, who he is, who he's supposed to be, and they in some ways prophesy uh, to the future coming of Jesus Christ. There are psalms of wisdom. So the first psalm talks about the, the man who uh, loves the delights in the law of God, and he's like a tree planted by streams of water. And so there's psalms that teach us how to live and how to think about God, and there's psalms of wisdom. So those are the main kinds, and throughout this series, we're, we're, we're making our effort to try to hit all of these and make sure we've got a cross-section. By the way, we're not going to go through all 150 psalms, if you're worried about that. Um, we're going to kind of pick and choose throughout the summer, uh, but we hope to get a cross-section of all those. Now, there's some other psalms. There's another way to look at the psalms that I won't get into, and that has to do with their function, and, and, and the research on this is not real conclusive. Um, they say that some of the psalms are for this kind of a, a temple service. These would be used for the people who are on their way to the temple. These would be used by the people who are leaving the temple or whatever it is. Um, but there's a lot of debate and discussion, and that doesn't quite help us so much. I think what's better, the better way to approach the psalms is just to accept them in all of their messiness and not try too hard to fit them into neat and tidy boxes and to categorize them. They're like life, right? They're like life. They touch all the aspects of what it means to be a human being following God and the struggle and the strain that goes along with that. And so we just look at that in the messiness of it. And, and like I said, we're going to try and find a cross-section um, before that. Now, before we do that, though, before we get into it, this morning what I'd like us to do is look at a particular psalm in the book of Exodus. So if you turn with me to Exodus 15, 49, I know you're thinking, you just spend a long time talking about how we're going to be studying the book of Psalms, and so we're going to the book of Exodus. But uh, this is really the first psalm, Exodus 15, and if you have the Bible that we passed out, it's page 49. This is really the first psalm that appears in the Bible. And it's important for us to recognize it and see it for at least two reasons. First of all, it demonstrates to us that the whole idea of singing songs to God, of processing life through poetry and music was part of the fabric of the nation of Israel right from the beginning. It's not something that happened later on. It was part of how they related to God through the music and the poetry of the Psalms. And the second reason why I wanted to go to this particular Psalm this morning is that this is the first Psalm that we encounter in the Bible, and it's connected to what is likely the most significant event in the Bible, and that is the Exodus event. And so 
it's, it's noteworthy that right after this most significant event, the first thing that happens is the nation of Israel sings a psalm. They write and sing a psalm to memorialize what has just happened. Now, the Exodus was the event, for, for those of you who are newer to the, the storyline of the Bible, the Exodus happened uh, on, at a certain time in the history of Israel on the heels, and it was an important part of the development of the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel started off with really the calling of Abraham, and it was just a small tribe of people, and through a very uh, amazing series of circumstances, um, they ended up in Egypt in order to escape certain death in a drought that was happening in the land where they had been, in the land of Canaan. They ended up in Egypt. Uh, they were there for 400 years, and they, they were very favored when they arrived in Egypt, but as time went on, they grew from this little tribe to perhaps a million people or so in Egypt. And as they grew and grew, of course, they began to take on more roles in Egypt. And in Egypt, uh, at a certain point, with the change in leadership, they began to become afraid of the people of Israel, and they enslaved them. They used them to make bricks for their buildings. And uh, so you had this, now this, this large and growing uh, group of people in Egypt and Egypt served as kind of like an incubation chamber for the nation of Israel. They grew and grew and grew. But then Egypt uh, turned against Israel. And uh, uh, so now we're entering into the story of Moses. And Moses wants to, by the call of God, break people free from Israel because the cry of the Israelites as slaves in Egypt has made its way up to God. And the story of the Exodus is the story of Israel being broken free from the slavery, from the enslavement in Egypt. And that's the story of the plagues. And at the end of the plagues, the nation of Israel um, escapes Egypt. And Pharaoh lets them go, but he changes their mi- his mind after they're partway out and he sends his military to chase them down. And they chase down the nation of Israel and they back them into a corner. They're against the, the Red Sea on one side. They can't go through the sea. They're trapped. And the evil forces of Pharaoh and his military on the other side, and the whole nation, men, women, and children, they're boxed in to this moment. And at that moment, God intervenes, and He he parts the waters, and they they cross through the water, and they come out on the other side, and just as they're gathering on the other side, God, the the, the military tries to follow them through the parted waters, uh, and and, and God closes the, the, the Red Sea back up again and saves Israel from certain death as he protects them from the chasers from Egypt. And right after that happens, they sing a song. They write poetry. They praise God through song. Interestingly, I say this is sort of the cornerstone of the Old Testament because when we, when we look through to the New Testament, we see this story of the Exodus takes a very particular role and place in the New Testament. When Jesus comes on the scene, it's almost as if we have a repeat of the exodus, of people being broken out of bondage and slavery, but this time not to Egypt, to sin itself. And it says right in the beginning of the New Testament, there's connections and allusions to the coming of Jesus Christ, saying that He will come, He, he says, I brought my son out of Egypt referring now to Jesus Christ. And when Jesus is on His way to the cross, He says to His disciples, uh, this is, uh, I'm about to go through my exodus. Because His going to the cross and being raised again is like Israel crossing through the water and coming out the other side. 
And so that story, which was the centerpiece of the Old Testament, now becomes the centerpiece of the New Testament, and, and it's modified and amplified through Jesus Christ. And so it becomes the story of us, a people who have, been, who have found a way out of the slavery of sin and the entrapment that it has us in. That's the story of the New Testament. It all happened because of Jesus Christ and His blood on the cross, um, which connects then to the Lamb. And there's so many connections, we could just go on and on. But the story of Exodus is the centerpiece of the Old Testament, and it becomes the centerpiece of the New Testament as well. And that's why I wanted to start with this psalm, because right after it happened, the people sang. The people worshipped. The people spoke poetry of God and what He'd done. Now, I'm going to read through chapter 15 of Exodus and this uh, first psalm in the Bible. And then, uh, because I've spent some time already talking about the psalms generally, I'm just going to pull out a couple of, hopefully, choice morsels from this. And then I want to make a couple of comments about what the psalms do in our lives. So, right after the Exodus event, this is what we have, chapter 15, verse 1. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord saying, I will sing to the Lord, for He has triumphed gloriously. The horse and His rider He has thrown into the sea. Amazing how it rhymes in English too. Huh? The Lord is my strength and my song. Now, if, you're, if you have your own Bible and you're an underliner, I'm going to suggest just six words that I would like you to underline as we go through this. The first one is strength. And the second one is song. And he has become my salvation. And that's the third one, underlined salvation. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father is God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he has cast into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The floods stood up in a heap. The deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword. My hand shall destroy them. So the Egyptians are breathing down their necks saying this. And then verse 10, But you blew your wind. The sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. A retelling of what happened. And now we reflect. Verse 11. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your hand, the earth swallowed them. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. Underline that word. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. The peoples have heard, they tremble, Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed, so all the nations around are watching what's going on. 
Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them because of the greatness of your arm. They are still as stone till your people, O Lord, pass by, till the people pass by whom you have purchased. Underline that word. You will bring them in, a, in and plant them on your own mountain, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, underline that word, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord will reign forever and ever. Winterline in verse 2, strength and song and salvation. In verse 10, I'd like you to underline, you blew with your wind. You blew with your wind. In verse 13, underline redeemed, and along with that goes the word purchased in verse 16. And then in verse 17, underline the word sanctuary. The collective soul of Israel processes what went on in the Exodus event through this psalm. They make sense out of what God has done through this psalm. They were a people weakened by their enslavement. When they tried to escape, the Egyptians just made it harder for them and said, now you have to make bricks and we're not going to give you straw. You have to go collect the straw, but you have to make as, just as many bricks. They were weakened and God has become their strength. They cried out in anguish and pain. The story tells us that. The people were crying out because they were so oppressed by the Egyptians. But that cry has been turned into a song because God has become their song. They were a beleaguered, chaste people who stood on the edge of the Red Sea with the evil forces of Pharaoh chasing after them and certain death, the only seeming option. And God intervened and became their salvation. He's their strength, their song, and their salvation. They stood there and the forces of evil were coming towards them. Chariots, weaponry, fury. And they were hemmed in because the Red Sea was on the other side. The creation that God had made was hemming in. They were subject to its forces. They could not overcome it. But God blew His wind, demonstrating that He is the Creator and has power over creation and opened up the seas and they were able to walk through. And as they look back on the story, they analyzed it and they said, you know what? We were a people in need of redemption. Somebody needed to buy us out of our slavery. And God bought us out. He redeemed us. He purchased us and brought us out. And now we're freed. And where do we go? Well, this God who brought us out has now promised to provide for us a sanctuary. A sanctuary where we can inhabit and dwell and thrive. In the middle of this amazing event, and their heads were spinning, and they didn't understand what is going on. Through the psalm, they process 
what has just happened. And they connect it to some of the deepest themes of the whole story of the Bible. God is their strength, their song, their salvation. He's the creator who has power over the world, and he's the redeemer. The Bible's divided into those two sections, really. Creation, and then Genesis 1 through 11, and redemption, Genesis 12 all the way to the end. And then at the very end, he's the sanctuary provider, and that's the whole story of where God is taking us into the future. Now, they could have walked away from this event and just said, well, that was weird, wasn't it? You know, and then just sort of gone on about their lives. You ever had that temptation? Something miraculous happens in your life, and you, and you kind of go, well, that was strange, but you don't really process it. You just sort of go on. What if, what if they had just gone on with their lives and not reflected back on the amazing thing that God had just done? They would have missed all these connections and all the, the amazing uh, work of God in their lives. And we as human beings, we have the temptation to do that. I do this constantly. I, I pray for things. God answers my prayer, and I never even acknowledge that He answered the prayer. I don't even connect it up again. It just goes right by me. I, I don't know what happened. We do this as, as individuals, and we do it collectively. It's, it's part of the human predicament. We, we go to God, and we, we ask for help, and He helps, and, and we don't connect the two, or we're in the middle of a difficult circumstance, and we can go for weeks, right? I just, we go for weeks just trying to figure it out and solve it on our own. And then we go, oh, wait, maybe I should bring God into the mix. Maybe I should pray for help. Maybe I should cry out to God. Maybe I should lament my circumstance and bring God into it and ask for His assistance and help. We process life apart from God so much of the time. Our souls are not opened to God in the way that they could be. And the psalmists show us what it means to live life with your soul sort of hanging out to God. To process everything that we're doing in light of who God is. We talk about this in the Gospel Academy course, the Gospel Proficiency, about bringing your story. to We have a story. There's a story of your life, right? And then there's a story of, of God. Can you put the next slide up? There's, a, there's my story and there's God's story. And part of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ is to go to the next slide, is to take your story and see it. Oh, you can see all, all you can see this. Take your story and to fit it into the overarching story of God. And that process of taking our story and fitting it into the overarching story of God, that's the process that the psalmist goes through when they connect up their circumstances to the person of God. That's what they're doing. The song makes the connections explicit between what's going on in our lives and what God is doing. I've told this story a number of times, but when our older uh, child, our, our son, was uh, at that time we started to lose teeth, we neglected to tell him that that's a natural process, that your teeth fall out. And so we were driving along in the van, and all of a sudden there was this sort of screaming in the back seat. And he was, you know, had some blood, and he's holding his tooth, and he's just, I don't know how he's processing this event. He's thinking to himself, my body is just falling apart. I mean... What, what does this mean? I've lost a tooth. Um, because we neglected to give him the overarching storyline that what ha- it's natural and it's normal for you to lose a tooth at a certain age. And so he was just, 
He was lost and alone living his story (laughs) without connecting it to the larger story of what naturally and normally happens in a person's life. And, and, And that's how we live and miss out what God has for us in this process. We, we, we don't live our story within the overarching story of God. And the Psalms help to correct that. They connect our lives to God's life. And in particular, um, in verse 1, I will sing to the Lord, for He has triumphed gloriously. And so the Psalms help us to connect our life, which seems sometimes so menial or so small or so pointless. They connect our lives to God's glorious triumph in us and in the world around us. I went through uh, just a portion of the Psalms. I didn't have time to go through every single one and look for these, but I asked the question, where are those moments when somebody has connected through the brokenness and the hurt and the pain of their life, connected it up to God? And, And what does it look like in the Psalms? And just a few of these. Psalm 3.3, But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. Psalm 18.2, The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom, I take, in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. These are hard-fought declarations that come after processing a difficult life under the watchful care of God and realizing His presence in their lives. The psalmists say, verse 23:1, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Psalm 27, 1, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Psalm 46, 1 through 3, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. Psalm 57.10, For your steadfast love is great to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. Psalm 59.16-17, But I will sing of your strength, I will sing aloud of your steadfast love in the morning, for you have been to me a fortress and a refuge In the day of my distress, O my strength, I will sing praises to you. For you, O God, are my fortress, the God who shows me steadfast love. Psalm 62, 1 through 2. For God alone, my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. He alone is my rock and my salvation. My fortress, I shall not be greatly shaken. The psalmist connect their lives and circumstances to the one who has the glorious triumph in the world. And when they do that, everything changes. So I'm going to ask you this as we kick off this series. Will you open your soul to God this summer? Will you open your soul to God this summer? Will you increase your awareness of what's really going on in your life. That's what the psalmists do. They write out, this is what's happening. I've been betrayed. I feel hopeless. Whatever. The psalmists connect up with what's really going on in their lives. And we have ways to do this. We can journal like the psalmists do. 
and we can talk to people. And I recommend you do both. Get some trusted people around you through your home group, maybe through your Emmaus partners, and be honest about what's really going on in your life. As you pray and you journal and you reflect, be honest about what's really going on in your life. Increase your sense, your awareness of what is actually taking place and where you're struggling. And then secondly, increase your understanding of how God wants to meet you in that place. And you do that by learning from the greats. And the greats are the psalmists. They know how to connect up their circumstances to what God is doing in the world. And the very first psalm says, I meditate on your law day and night. And so here's my challenge for you, and this is what I'm taking on for myself, to read a psalm every day this summer when you get up and before you go to bed. Day and night. Begin the day with a psalm and finish the day with a psalm. And learn from the greats how to process life with God and not apart from God. And He will meet us. Make room for God to work in your life in this way. Uh, Ravi Zacharias, who's a famous Christian apologist, told the story of being in India, and he was wanting to see uh, how saris were made. Uh, saris are what they wear uh, in weddings, beautiful, six yards long, apparently, uh, these dresses that are elaborate, all kinds of colors, uh, often silver and gold, uh, and he wanted to see how these were woven together. And so he went into a shop, and he expected to see that there would be uh, some machinery and just some elaborate kind of thing. But what he saw were father and son teams, and the father would be up high on a platform, and he would be weaving these beautiful threads together, the, the sari. And then below would be the son, and he would have the shuttle, which is part of the mechanism for weaving. And I even looked it up on Wiki, and I still don't understand what it is exactly. But what I do know is the shuttle needs to be moved back and forth in the process of the weaving of the material above. And so the son would be below, and at the nod of the head of the father, the son would move the shuttle one place, and then he would weave for a little while longer, and then the son, he'd nod his head, and the son would move the shuttle back to another place, and this would go back and forth. And as I was reading about this story, I thought, what would it be like if the son never lifted up his head to see what was being produced above? What would it be like if the son only focused head down, moving the shuttle back and forth, had no concept of what was going up on above him? Didn't see the threads being woven together? Didn't see the beautiful sort of patterns emerging as the master weaver was weaving together this beautiful tapestry for a special occasion, a wedding. What a loss if that son never got to see what was happening. Now one day, you know, we're, we're moving the shuttle back and forth, it feels like a lot in life. And we don't understand, we catch glimpses. One day we're going to see the whole tapestry that God has been weaving in our lives. We're going to see it perfectly, and it's going to be glorious. 
But we don't have to wait completely to that day to catch a glimpse. We can look up and we can see what God is doing already. Maybe from the bottom side, but we can see what God is doing. And that's what the Psalms do. We're moving the shuttle back and forth and we don't, we don't know what's going on exactly, but we have the opportunity to look up and to connect what we're doing to the glorious artistry of our Maker, our Heavenly Father working above us. That's what the Psalms do. They're glimpses, pictures, glances of what God is doing in our lives. And so I'm going to say to us, let's look up more. Right? Let's look up and see and connect and live life through the lens of what God is doing. Would you pray with me? When we look through the history of the Bible, Lord, we see over and over again the kind of people that we're called to emulate. People like Moses and Abraham and especially David, Paul, the disciples, and of course, Jesus. And in every case, we see people who maybe had gifts or seemingly did the right things or were chosen by you in the right place at the right time. But in every case, what we really see is a person living life with their soul hanging out to you, their hearts out to you, drawing you into their circumstances, crying out to you in needs, crying out to you in celebration, leaning into you in hopeless circumstances, giving you thanks for moments of salvation. This is what we see in the people of God. And it's what you've called us to be as a people following you, who are real, transparent, authentic, open. Would you make us more and more so in this coming season as we open up the Psalms and we seek to learn from the Masters what it means to live life, to bring our story under your story, to look up and catch a glimpse of the beautiful work you are weaving together that includes our lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.